0: Hi, and thanks for downloading episode two of Ethical Theory Review. Today's topic is going to be religion and moral development. So I've got a couple of topics here we're going to discuss. First of all, there are going to be questions about religious institutions and practices. So we're going to focus on Christian institutions and practices. You could think about, are those necessary for moral development in individuals or in cultures? And even if you think that they aren't necessary, or could they be a positive influence on moral development? We're gonna be discussing Christian views saying they have a vital role to play and enlightenment views that say, Christian institutions and practices actually impede moral development, or at best that they're replaceable with some sort of secular institutions. Second set of questions we're gonna talk about have to do with religious ideas or conceptions of how moral development operates. Part of this is going to be a theory of human nature. So some thinkers have a rather negative view of human nature. For example, the German pietists who we'll discuss, they think our capacities for reason and imagination can't generate moral progress. In fact, they might impede moral progress. Instead, they think we need to engage in religious practices that will open us up to divine agency having an impact on the way we live. That's how moral development is going to happen. In reaction to that, we'll be discussing Enlightenment figures from Germany, such as Alexander von Humboldt and Friedrich Schiller, who valorize human capacities and say, no, our capacities for reason and imagination can do a lot to clear the way for development, and maybe those should replace religion. In fact, some of these thinkers are going to suggest that we could develop a secular religion of art that will replace the religious institutions that they think are actually problematic. With me here to discuss this sort of back and forth today will be Jennifer Hurt. She is the Gilbert Stark Professor of Christian Ethics at Yale University Divinity School. So Professor Hurt has written a book, Forming Humanity, Redeeming the Building Tradition, that explores the thinkers I've talked about already and other ones. And she's interested in the way that, as I just described, some religious figures have a very negative view of human agency and imply that all that matters is divine agency. Then we have enlightenment figures flipping the script and saying, no, divine agency is completely unnecessary. Human agency can get everything done. Professor Hurd is interested in working out a theological view that overcomes that contrastive dichotomy of human versus divine agency, and thinking about how can human agency and divine agency work together to facilitate moral progress. As we'll discuss, she draws on some other German Enlightenment figures, such as Herder and Hegel and Goethe, in order to think about a constructive view. I'm a secular moral philosopher, so I'm interested in her book for a number of reasons, one of which is the challenges that religious views pose to secular attempts to give an account of moral development and thinking about the kinds of institutions and practices that might need to be developed in order to make moral progress. So, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the program today. And I thought we'd start out by talking about those German pietists I mentioned who had a rather negative view of human agency. And then we can move on to some of our other figures and the back and forth results. So, Jennifer, welcome to the program.
1: All right, great. Um, thanks so much, Brad, first of all, for inviting me to, to uh, talk with you about this. I, I really look forward to it. So, yeah, I mean, the pietists were reacting against what they took to be a lifeless form of Christianity that was focused on doctrinal disputes. And they were interested in promoting an active, practical Christianity of transformed lives. And by virtue of the fact that they were focused in this way on active, practical Christianity, they they were opening themselves up to charges of works righteousness. That is, of the idea that you were able to earn your own salvation by virtue of what you did. And that would have Framed them as sympathetic to Catholicism. Uh, Protestants tend to be quite nervous about being charged with works righteousness. So my take on them is that in order to guard themselves against that kind of a charge, they emphasize that, no, 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 we are not doing all of this on our own. And um, this is the Holy Spirit that's acting in us. This is God doing all of these things. God is transforming our lives. And so that protected them against the charges of works righteousness. But it really did feed into this contrastive notion that they felt they really had to underscore, we are not active. Only God is active. And this went along with a, a very negative view of the world. So Christians are over against the world, and human agency is worldly in character. And it extended to um, a harsh criticism of of human creativity and, and imagination. Um, these were all things that were associated with worldliness and with the, an improper assertion of human agency.
0: Oh, that's really interesting that the pietists, even though they downplayed or denigrated human agency, they were interested in active agency in the world in a way that maybe they felt other christians weren't Um, that's one thing i wouldn't have thought but another thing i wanted to bring up is that you emphasize in the chapter the practices of what i would think of as inwardness or inner self cultivation that the pietists had through bible study so from my point of view it looks like they were encouraging actual practices of human agency but is the idea that they're thinking of that agency they're they're exerting there it's really enabling or opening themselves up to divine agency doing the work uh is that the interpretive gloss they're trying to put on their practices
1: right. yeah absolutely that really is the way that they would have understood it so they they were famous for forming these small conventicles sort of bible study circles they would come together in addition to regular Sunday worship, and they would gather and read scripture together and reflect on it very much in as they examined their own lives. But this was all understood as not kind of developing their own, their own agency, but rather very much as this is how we open ourselves to the workings of the Holy Spirit.
0: Okay. And if we link this back to what you said earlier about their desire to avoid charges of works righteousness. Does that involve rejecting a sort of Aristotelian model of virtue development or character development where through habituation and maybe active agency, you develop positive character traits, virtues? And I'm wondering, is that a model of virtues and virtue development that, they were setting themselves against when they were setting themselves against and trying to avoid the charge of works righteousness
1: certainly i mean they would have been un- they would have been uneasy with the notion that you could naturalistically habituate yourself into a virtue i mean in practice they they use plenty of virtue language but they conceive of it differently they conceive of it fundamentally as just opening themselves up to the work of god and they would certainly resist any notion of virtues as something that you you kind of possess that become yours.
0: Okay, great. So at this point, I thought we'd move on to some of the Enlightenment figures who reacted against views like the Pietists and who valorized human agency. So there'll be various figures we'll talk about from the book, but some of them from the point of view of your interpretation, I think, did go too far in the other direction in valorizing human agency and maybe not seeing the ways that could become problematic or hubristic. And so I thought maybe we could turn to figures like that, Schiller and Humboldt, and talk about some of the worries about that part of the Enlightenment movement that you have or that Karl Barth had, a famous theologian who plays a big role in who you dialogue with in the book. So I thought we could turn to some of Bart's worries about swinging in the other direction.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, Humboldt is, is a great example of someone who really is very enthusiastic about autonomous human agency and the, the capacity to, for us to form ourselves into a, a kind of perfect humanity, and indeed he thinks that probably the most important key to doing that is throwing off religious authority that's been you know cramping down our our agency and he thinks that religious believers have been looking toward external forces instead of looking within for their own for their own powers of transformation it, he does draw on some some sorts of religious notions like a transformed notion of the of the image of god so there's there's something like a, an affirmation in Humboldt that that we are that we have the image of hum, perfect humanity within us and that we can work toward the realization the unfolding the development of that image but he's in, he's very insistent that that shouldn't be understood in in platonic ways like a platonic form nor should it be understood as Jesus Christ dwelling within in a kind of mystical way. He, he can't get away completely from, from some of the religious imagery, though. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that would be um, encapsulates Humboldt's very, very positive stance. Now, in terms of the reaction against that, or or, or uh, reasons for being nervous about that theologically, let me say a little bit about how Karl Barth responds to this. I, I, you know, barth is such a critically important theologian of the 20th century, but someone who frames many Christians' perceptions of this the time period that I'm dealing with in the book, sort of late 18th, early 19th century. And he is concerned that this uh, very pro-human agency stance has a tendency to regard its own self-creations in absolutizing ways. That there is indeed, you use the word hubris, and that's a great word to use, that that these are fundamentally hubristic attitudes that tend to insulate themselves from from criticism, from encounter with views that differ from their own. And one of the things that I try to draw out in the book is the ways in which these Humboldt-type views feed into championing european imperialism projects of scientific racism and so on so i talk about that as a you know one of the Janus faces of bildung my subtitle is redeeming the german bildung tradition but it does require redemption in the sense that it really did foster attitudes of uh, well first of all cultural elitism the notion that there are people who are properly formed humans, and then there are lots of lots that aren't properly formed humans. In fact, probably some peoples will never advance to full civilization, and, and that therefore justifies an imperialist project in which we maybe do our best to bring the bring these backward peoples towards civilization, but at the same time are confirming that we we uh, will remain always more fully civilized. So I think Bart really is tuned into the. Features of this view that feed into those problematic things. I mean, theologically, he discusses this in terms of listening for the word of God. I mean, obviously, Christians talk about the word of God, and that refers to scripture, it refers to Jesus Christ. But for Bart, it means listening to criticism. It means it means holding yourself to an external authority on whatever your convictions and commitments are and being attentive to, uh, well, to the divine voice, but to the divine voice that may come to you from all sorts of unexpected directions, leading you to, to properly question your commitments.
0: That brings up one of the things I found very interesting and instructive in the book was that you emphasize that on Christian views, there is an an encounter with God and and a role of divine agency, but that where that shows up is not so much in a notion of providential design or large uh, providential structures to history, but in the encounter with individual people. And you also link that in the book to the idea of encountering novel ideas or challenges to your background assumptions. I thought that was an interesting way of thinking about the inbreaking of divine agency, so to speak, phenomenologically. And you linked it to the tradition of critical theory and critique of questioning, making us aware of, and allowing us to question or critique our background assumptions or prejudices that we have. So, one thing I was interested in was how Christian cultic practices or Christian religious institutions might be thought to play a role in enabling that sort of openness to people who maybe we wouldn't notice or appreciate or understand or respond to adequately, and also to ways in which it could enable us to question our background assumptions. Another thought that I was interested in, kind of a counterpoint to that, is that maybe Humboldt's vision of human beings creating themselves and developing themselves and realizing their artistic capacities to live creative, interesting lives, or something along those lines, as I worry about it being a little bit self focused or narcissistic, and failing to open us up to other people, strangers or people who are on the margins who are not normally paying attention to, it would just reinforce that. And also, it wouldn't necessarily lead us to challenge our background assumptions or prejudices that we start out with. So I thought maybe I'd ask you to say a little bit more about that and about Christian uh, practices. Yeah. No,
1: no, that's great. It's very suggestive. So just to go back to the pietists for a moment, I mean, one can certainly imagine Christians engaging in practices like the pietists but, with a different understanding of the relationship with between divine and human agency, and let's say not as nervous about charges of works' righteousness, and they might very well understand themselves to be, say, cooperating, participating in God's working. And I certainly think that the kinds of practices that they engaged in are positive practices of of reflective self-examination in relationship to you know, scripture, as well as to the lives of exemplary individuals. So they also were very engaged in writing spiritual autobiographies and reading spiritual autobiographies. And that certainly was uh, all about kind of reflectively leading your life. And in a way that also, I think, importantly, engages with some, you know, core Christian doctrines. The world is created. It's declared good by God. It's loved by God it's fallen so it's it's finite it's not absolute in itself and its goodness it's not it's not perfect or autonomously good and it's also riven through by evil but not abandoned by god so all of these the, the doctrinal aspects are also i think really quite important in terms of disposing people to this attitude of you know certainly commitment to trying to better oneself in the world, but with a kind of reservation attached to it that we're going to mess up as we go about trying to form ourselves in the world. And and we need to be um, attentive to where we've gone wrong and where we've gone wrong on an individual level and where we've gone wrong on a communal level. Now, I mean, have Christian Christians always been really good at this? Uh, well, no, not exactly.
0: Okay. Very interesting. Well, I... Thought we could shift to humboldt and schiller to some extent and one issue is that you've been bringing out the way that the pietists did have a positive story about self-cultivation but humboldt and schiller one thing it seems like they reacted to a lot was the pietist critique of imagination so in addition to them not liking the idea of developing positive traits that you could then would be a part of you it would show how excellent you were they reacted against the idea that imagination is a good thing and schiller and humboldt you lay out in the book in different ways really pushed back against that and they thought imagination should play a huge role in our attempts to improve ourselves and live good lives as individuals and as cultures and so in one way, Schiller was interested in the development of a harmonious psychology. So I think of Aristotle's contrast between continence and virtue, A sort of potted example would be, you might be someone who's going to go to your kid's soccer game or baseball game. And one person decides to go because they know it would be a really bad thing. They'd be a jerk if they didn't go. But when they get there, they don't really want to be there and they get distracted and are checking their phone and they just sort of endure the, the being there. A second parent might go and think it's the right thing to do and go and then enjoy it and have fun and cheer from the sidelines. And so that might be an example of the first person is continent, but they're sort of making themselves do the right thing. And the second person has full virtue. They enjoy doing the, the right thing. And There's a way in which the second kind of person has a sort of harmony in their psychology. Their desires are in harmony with their judgments about what it's best to do. And Schiller thought that imagination and aesthetic education or some kind of artistic, broadly artistic education could play a role in all of us achieving something closer to full virtue and having harmonized desires and judgments about the good. So that's an interesting idea. Another idea in Humboldt is that he thought also imagination was very important, but he had a very different model of what imagination should do. But he thought, again, the pietists and other groups had underplayed the role that imagination plays in achieving individuality and living a good life. So I thought maybe we could turn to these pro-imagination views in the light of the attacks on imagination from the Pietists and earlier thinkers.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, first off, it might be better to go to your son's game or your child's game and 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 be buried in your phone because it shows <laughs> all, those, all those over over zealous parents cheering to the sidelines, maybe messing things up. So, Schiller's got this very famous notion of aesthetic education, uh, and he sees it as politically as well as ethically absolutely crucial. It is one expression of this broader phenomenon of Kunstreligion, or the religion of art that we also see in Humboldt. So this is really a generation that actually quite self-consciously is looking for substitutes for organized religion. They are looking for these substitutes in part because they just don't find Christian religious beliefs compelling, but also because they find those institutions authoritarian and th- the kind of moral development that they think needs to happen cannot happen under authoritarian, in authoritarian contexts. So there's a kind of infantilizing of individuals that they think is happening within the churches, as well as within the the kind of authoritarian political societies of their day. So they turn to art as a, a response to this and they recognize that in doing so, they are drawing on certain features from Religion, but they think kind of de- detaching these from the problematic authoritarian and doctrinal features. So for for Schiller, it's it is the central idea is one of of harmonizing the various drives within the human being, and this is the kind of thing we're familiar with from Romanticism. That oh, you know, we have sense or feeling on the one hand and reason on the other hand, and these are pulling us apart. Well, how can we bring them together? Or, you know, on the one hand, we're temporal creatures, but on the other hand, we have this glimpse of the eternal. And how do we bring those things together? So so this is very much what Schiller is thinking about when he talks about aesthetic education and he believes that art will have the capacity to, to harmonize us. And as you, you were kind of hinting, he thinks that this not only does it bring make us more harmonious, less less divided by inner tensions and so on, but he but he thinks that this will enable us to reach true virtue. Um, he doesn't really use that terminology that much, but to act well in a free and easy way right? that with grace. He uses the term grace to discuss this. He's unhappy with Kant because he thinks that Kant leaves us you know, strenuously acting as we should, and that's not good enough. So we need something more than a great rationalistic philosophy. We need art to bring that about.
0: Okay. So if we went back to your title, redeeming the building tradition, do you think that you could want to redeem or Christians might want to appropriate some of these ideas about imagination playing a positive role? So, I'm thinking of the ideas you just went over where Schiller first says aesthetic education, aesthetic experience, they probably could help us harmonize our psychology, develop a more graceful, free way of fulfilling virtuous ideals rather than a dutiful one. Do you think that idea or maybe Humboldt's idea of art giving us access to something like a transcendent, are those ideas or those ways of thinking about imagination, things that could be taken up today today? by the Christian tradition.
1: Yeah, sure. I mean, I guess I, I think that there is genuine insight there. They're thematizing those things that are, of course, already there in the practice of Christianity. So you just think about, well, you know, one example, something like communal singing of hymns. You know, you, you internalize this music and, it's the words and the music together, and it comes back to you at important moments in your life when you're facing certain challenges, and it might comfort you or it might inspire you, uh, you know, make you feel more courageous, more able to meet a challenge, or uh, you know, in various ways. This is music that can powerfully shape your dispositions, and not only that, I mean, the fact that you sing it together with a community means you're. You, you, you're kind of harmonizing your your dispositions and your reactions, your attitudes with this whole communal body. So that would be just, you know, one example. And obviously there are many, many more in terms of the way in which through the history of Christianity or any religious tradition, the arts are, are woven so fully into them. And I mean, this is, we, have, we haven't gotten to Hegel at all, but this, this is really one of Hegel's insights that he, He understands the history of art and the history of religion and the ways in which these are are really fully interpenetrating. And he sees that with modernity, art has arrived at a kind of autonomy, but that this is a loss of its cultural influence. To be autonomous in that way means that you're you're kind of just art. (laughs) And and so he he thinks that actually there's there's an ongoing need for something for religion, for religious practice. Um, even though, of course, he thinks that philosophy has the the absolute authority.
0: Well, I'm not sure what Hegel's thinking about is what's going on in current philosophy departments. But uh, that aside, this might be a good chance to switch gears and talk about some of the other figures in the book: Herder, Goethe, and Hegel, who I think you more or less interpret them as overcoming or seeing us seeing a way to help us overcome contrast of understanding where the earlier pietists may have had an overly negative view of human agency and imagination and then we had the uh, schiller we just talked about at humboldt they may have sort of overplayed how much art can do or how what imagination can do so maybe we could go back and talk about how do these figures problematize the pietist negative view and point in a positive direction
1: yeah absolutely so let me let me focus on on her for the moment i mean he's really a a fascinating figure and he's he's someone who's really interested in processes of holistic organic development uh, both on the individual level and on the communal level and in fact actually he sees this happening in the natural world as well and he understands this all in a in a a somewhat, you know, pantheistic or panentheistic way—that this is God working in the world toward a telos, um, and that telos is humanity in some sense. Um, not that, not in a narrowly anthropocentric uh, sense of glorifying the human, but in the sense of realizing the best possibilities for what human beings could be. Um, in a sense that uh, humans could serve the serve creation most fully. and it in in this understanding he he sees no reason to set up any kind of a contrastive understanding between uh, opposition between human agency and divine agency. Human beings are just participants in this in this process of organic development. They differ from other creatures in that they can do so in a in an active self-conscious way they can come to a point of understanding themselves as participating in the development of of themselves and of the world toward perfection and so he sees that as as a human agency and divine agency working hand in hand so i mean i think there's something positive there Uh, obviously christians are going to Shy away from a, a pantheistic view, um, and this has to do with what what I think is a you know, major limitation of the herderian view, which is he's, he's rather optimistic about all of this working out. So he's moved away from a static great chain of being in which everything has its neat and tidy place that, that leads to this or beautifully ordered whole, but he's kind of put it on its side historically, and what we have is this. Process is kind of leading toward perfection uh, with everything having its place in the whole. Um, Positive, I think, in the sense that he values cultural diversity, he values individuality, he's a staunch opponent of imperialism, um, you know, blows the scientific racism out of the water. So all of that's good, but just kind of optimistic about, well, we're going to move through the the bad patches and it's all going to get better kind of by itself. Mm-hmm. And Christians will look at that and say, you know, no, unfortunately not. You've forgotten about sin. You've forgotten about human finitude. You've forgotten about the transcendence of God. Um, and we'll point to a more eschatological understanding of history. History is messy. Um, it, there's no neat progress. And the telos, the goal, is always going to elude us in, in important respects. Uh, perfection is, is eschatologically deferred. It's, it's outside of history. It's not something that we can actually um, fully realize.
0: Yeah, that's super interesting. It brings to mind a connection I kept thinking about when I was reading that part of the book about Herder's relationship to uh, W.E. Du Bois. So if anyone's interested, I'd recommend Anthony Apaya's Lines of Descent it really brings out the role of Herder and other German figures uh, in his training. And when you kind of relates to that point you just made about worry about Herder being insensitive to the need to struggle and exercise collective and individual agency, if we're going to hope to develop the kind of ideal of flowering humanity he's got. And of course, to voice also in Souls of Black Folks takes up that idea that each individual culture, or he's thinking, I guess, about more about races, has something to unique an individual that needs to be developed. So that's just an interesting connection that I thought a lot about might interest people. The other thing is when you bring up that last point about the worry about Herder's picture, leading to at least, I guess, two things. One is, uh, sounds like you're saying, you could end up being sort of sanguine about thinking you've achieved some kind of ideal endpoint. And that definitely looks problematic. Du Bois is responsive to that. And then also, there is the point about worrying that things are just going to naturally keep teleologically developing and that they've developed that way. That can obviously blind you to further progress that needs to be made or maybe problematic things in the past. So, I was really taken with that criticism, and it seems to me someone like Du Bois shows how a secular philosopher could take on board some of these critiques or worries about Herder's picture, but also try to, to carry on some of the, the positive ones. So I'm interested to hear what you think about that. Um,
1: yeah, I'm so glad you, you brought Du Bois into the conversation, because I, uh, I do i mentioned him in the syndicate conversation, and I'll be Discussing him further in a, in a piece that I have coming out, um, in uh, well, well, we'll see where it comes out. But uh, I do see Du Bois as as a figure who's deeply influenced by this building tradition, and, and that I mean he knows he's drawing on this tradition. He's all he's also a figure with a kind of ambiguous relationship to Christianity, but there's just no question that he is avoiding this major pitfall that I identify in, in the building tradition, that there's nothing, there's nothing optimistic about him. He, he, he's, he's claiming this tradition, but in a way that really looks squarely at the worst of human evil and still, still takes that kind of responsibility for self-formation in this, in this, um, in this, you know, humbled uh, way. And then to, to pick up on what you were suggesting in terms of, what uh, a secular thinker like yourself might be able to to make common cause with, um, yeah, I, I think that's right. I, I would say a, a secular stance that embraces moral realism, or at least a an, at least an anti anti realism, um, and then with it uh, fa- fallibilism. I think there's a there's a lot that there are many ways in which there will be a, a lot of resonance between that and the kind of Christian stance that I'm advocating.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay. Oh, great. Well, that sounds like we're on the same page with that issue. And I guess one other thing that comes to mind from bringing up Du Bois is an idea that I think is in Du Bois. He has a notion of the talented 10th of something like maybe public intellectuals or artists that are necessary for cultural progress and in some ways to overcome the problems of the the color line and issues of racism in the united states i'm not a du bois expert but roughly i find this to resonate with an idea that i associate with definitely mill and i think some of the other advocates of the religion of art probably um herder and then maybe schiller at least and the idea is that we need to have certain human beings who are going to receive usually an extraordinary education. They may need super talent or something like that. And what they're going to do is basically serve as I think of a sort of pace cars uh, or sort of exemplary signposts that we orient our individual and collective activity around. And so most ordinary people, many of them may not be able to get the educations these people get or have the talent they do. So, There's a worry some people have that there's a kind of an elitism built into this. But the upside, I think, for these figures is they think it's important to have these exemplary people out there demonstrating to us that the achievement of really admirable individuality is possible. And perhaps some of these people are also thought to add new cultural ideas that can be taken up by ordinary people and inspire them. So I'm interested in What you think of that basic idea that part of this secular project seems to involve the idea that we need these distinctive exemplary people who maybe require some kind of aesthetic education or aesthetic talent or maybe it's more understood in terms of classical learning but the idea that we need these exemplars out there sort of outstanding human beings will stand out and orient our activities individually and culturally and collectively. So I'm curious what you make of that idea and how you'd react to it from a Christian point of view.
1: Well, it's a really interesting and, and complicated nest of, of issues. I mean, what's what's certainly clear is that this this generation of German thinkers were um, very aware of the role that Jesus had played as moral exemplar for Christians. Um, and it, for the pietists that kind of went hand in hand with with lifting up exemplary Christian lives, the elitism was somewhat tempered, though, by the by the kind of Christian commitment that Jesus is is the perfect human because Jesus is human and divine. I mean, Jesus is, is God incarnate. So, so there's this perfect standard which then relativizes all other exemplars, um, and that when you join that with the idea that exemplary humans who are not Jesus Christ are exempt they're exemplary by by virtue of the of the power of divine grace acting in them so that kind of pulls the pulls the rug from out of prideful hubris about their exemplarity I mean that's an interesting dynamic that then gets transformed uh, when you come to thinkers like, uh, Schiller and Goethe and Humboldt and so on, that, that are are transforming this into something like the notion of romantic genius. Um, part of what happens here is I think that they, the notion of romantic genius is a de-ethicized notion to some extent. Um, so that's part of what... Uh, you know, maybe these aren't really moral exemplars. They're they're larger than life humans. Uh, um, they're Faustian characters, maybe more than than uh, Christ-like characters. Um, so that's one aspect. But there is also this other sense in which, if these are purely human achievements, then um, you you get the danger of of pride bound up with the exemplarity. And how do you how do you um, navigate that? territory
0: well that's interesting because that idea of the, the de-ethicized romantic genius brings to mind williams bernard williams's invocation of gauguin and the idea that someone could think devotion to their aesthetic projects and the meaning that gives to their life and maybe the larger I meaning it contributes to the culture you could expand on it and say that's going to justify immoral activity but anyway i guess we should shift gears and now with the time remaining i wanted to bring up a couple of questions that are more general so one is that these figures we've been talking about they introduce the idea of a religion of art and as you mentioned they looks like they recognize that religious practice and religious ideas and the influence of religion on culture they are things that need to be replaced so if we're going to develop a secular worldview in culture One challenge is to figure out what's going to do the work that religion was doing. And I'm curious, if you look at that question today of what can we learn from this, I'd like to hear more about this idea of them developing a religion of art and maybe what we could positively take away from that. Another question is, when we look at contemporary philosophy, we find people like Martha Nussbaum or maybe Cora Diamond, others, Emphasizing the way that if we do study novels, for example, or other form, get exposed to other forms of art, that might play an important role or an essential role in cultivating, for example, civic virtue, but maybe also leading good individual lives. And I'm curious what you think about that in the light of the work you've done in the book about these past figures who had somewhat similar ideas and your, your critique of that or worries about those from the point of view of a Christian theologian.
1: So let me, let me begin by saying just a little bit more about what um, Goethe and Schiller in particular were hoping they could accomplish because they really had a program going. Um, and the, the novel was going to play a really important role in their, in their program. So they thought, well, you know the Pietists have these practices of, of of reading Scripture and exemplary lives and and building their identities around these. And we're going to take that over um, in a secular literature. And this there's been interesting work on the novel, the modern novel as um, a, a genre that that enshrines the dignity of the ordinary individual. And I think there's something really importantly right about this that the novel the novel was not about a, a heroic character, not about an aristocratic character. It was, there was the thought that ordinary people's lives could be worthy of sustained attention. Also, there was the notion that ordinary people have inner lives that are worthy of attention. And that this whole practice of, of pietist spiritual autobiography had developed the whole language for the inner life that really hadn't existed before. Um, and that's taken into the writing of, of the novel, so that you're not just describing from the exterior an ordinary person's life, but you're you're just descri- you know you're, you're describing their their lived experience, their emotions, their reflections, and so on. And and for Goethe and Schiller, this was this was going to be um, the execution of this of this uh, project of of aesthetic education, and it was going to prepare the ground for more uh, Republican forms of government, more participatory um, you know, form, forms of, of organizing our lives together in community. Um, but they also had to grapple with some, some challenges here. I mean, one of them is uh, you're trying to form people to be autonomous self-formers, but you're telling a story about somebody else. And you know, if, if you identify too much with the hero of the novel, then you're actually not going to be an autonomous self-former anymore. You're going to be kind of a disciple of this of this her- hero. And so they were trying to disrupt in a way the identification of the reader with the protagonist. And it turns out that people actually don't like to read fiction that's challenging in that way. People really like to lose themselves in fiction. They like to be completely drawn into the story and identify wholly. And so they were writing... a it ended up being a kind of elitist form of art that was heavily reflective and kind of alienating. Um, and so it just didn't have the capacity to, to be broadly transformative um, in the way that they wanted it to be. And they, and they became kind of disenchanted with it. So novels were wildly you know, popular, commercially successful, and so on, you could reach people, but you could reach them with Pulp Fiction and that wasn't gonna bring about aesthetic education. So, I mean, I think we continue to grapple with those kinds of challenges today when it comes to thinking about the moral transformative possibilities of art. Um, so, but to think more a little bit more squarely about um, some of the more contemporary work that's been done on on um, art and 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 moral transformation, more character. And you brought up the work of Martha Nussbaum in particular. She is very focused on the ways in which art, literature in particular, um, and then the novel even more especially, um, and evokes empathy that we that we empathize with those who are um, potentially quite different from ourselves, whom we would ordinarily um, see as quite alien and and be be you know, perhaps judgmental of, of, of the ways that they're living and acting and so on. So it can really open us up and transform us, transform our judgments. And I think that that's certainly true. I mean, I think that it, that uh, literature does have that power. Film has that power. Some of the other media. That's slightly different from what Goethe and Schiller were focused on, which was more of this, um, how do we develop into um Harmonious, self-forming individuals who are kind of in charge of our own agency, but it. But I think that that there is insight in both of these, and it's actually helpful to think about how they relate to one another. Um, the the empathy. I mean, certainly Herder was a figure who was thinking quite a lot about uh, how how different our various cultural forms are, and you can imagine hooking that up with the power of, of literature to to um, assist us in encountering these alien forms of life in a, in, in a sympathetic or empathetic way.
0: That's super interesting. Uh, so the connection, yeah, you're raising this question about if we think of the novel as helping us achieve something like uh, individuality and thinking about that process, how does that connect up with the other function maybe Someone like Nussbaum emphasizes that the the novel making us more empathetic and sort of gaining access to others who are very different than us, or maybe becoming more painfully aware of of our limited knowledge of them. So, yeah, maybe I'm I'm just thinking on the fly. You you have a chapter on Goethe's Wilhelm Meister, and that was for me one of the more interesting chapters because I learned a lot I didn't know about that book and ended up rereading it. Basically. One theme there that you bring out is that the way you read the novel, it's a story of someone who's attempting, I think, something like the Humboldt model approach of kind of achieving autonomous independence from his social milieu and striking out on his own, trying to figure out how he wants to live his life and using his own creative powers to do that. And one of the lessons you tell the way I read it was that the protagonist learns that in fact, he is more sort of a dependent rational animal, we might say, think of Eilster McIntyre's book, than he knew and to make changes in progress and to flourish in his own life, he needs to engage with and maybe critique, but also build on his relationships to others and the tradition he's inheriting. And so maybe one lesson there would be a kind of humility. And so I could see that's not necessarily a really fun, cheery message that the average reader wants, like you pointed out. And also, it's, uh, you know, if Goethe used kind of modernist authorial means or, you know, ways of writing to do this, I could see that would also frustrate people. And... But that's, then that might, if you're humbled in that, if, you're, if you read the novel and you kind of take this message of humility about what you can accomplish on your own, but you might still be inspired to try to kind of build, build on the past in a new way, that sort of Hegelian picture of how progress is gonna happen. The agents, human agent, dependent human agency has to build on this more background, inherited collective uh, project or be embedded in a, in a group project. That might lead to some kind of empathy, but maybe not the kind of radical empathy that someone like Nussbaum or uh, you mentioned some some Christian thinkers want an openness to the other. But one thing I thought I'd also bring up that is about Nussbaum is uh, I wrote a reviewer book and I and I really learned a lot from that book. uh, Why why justice you need to supplement sort of respect and the desire for justice with compassion and. I think that sounds plausible but her attempt to explain how we're going to develop that through artistic means struck me as maybe a little bit optimistic and so it could be that nussbaum only thinks that's going to do part of the work but in general my thought is relying on art to cultivate empathy seems like a good idea but we might need to be a little bit skeptical about might do empirical studies to see how much can that actually do in terms of pushing us in a positive direction. So I wonder what you think about that.
1: Yeah. Thank you. I mean, that is something that I do discuss somewhat in the book because I I think that's absolutely right. And it takes me back to a part of your earlier question that I, that I had dropped and and I I need to get back to, which is what, what gets lost, right. From, from religion, if you're trying to create this religion of art and, and rely on, on its power, and I, I do think that that it is uh, unrealistic to think that reading, cer- certainly reading, uh, reading novels by yourself in a room brings about uh, fundamental character transformation, and that there is there is something about um, that. I don't know. Totalizing isn't the right word, but but in a religious tradition, the fact that you are, um, yes, often there are texts or scriptures that are central that are read and reread and and so on. there's there's uh, music, there might be hymns, there's gathering together in worship, which has a ritual form. Usually there's ritual texts that are repeated, there's sacraments or practices that are that are engaged in. Um, over and over again, and, and in patterned ways, and you're doing this together with a community, and um, that is going to be much more fully transformative. Um, I, I think what's, um, and 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 um, Hegel, by the way, uh, is quite attentive to this, and, and does does you know, as I mentioned very briefly earlier, does think that there will be an ongoing need for this kind of uh, ritual embodiment. Of our moral convictions uh, and our, our philosophical convictions, because of the kind of embodied creatures that we are. I mean, we 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 have uh, reason, but we also have feeling, emotion, and uh, all of this needs to be coordinated together. And what's complicated, right? You know, in, in the contemporary world, is is that it's um, we we belong to so many different communities of identity, and they're overlapping um, and. They, they form us in different ways and to different degrees so we we identify uh, so so a, you know pick out a particular uh, say Christian American individual well that that person has a family identity a, let's say a town identity uh, they identify with their sports team and with their university and and also with their church congregation and with their denomination uh, as well as with their political party and the nation and, and so on. And, and those don't all fit, uh, fit harmoniously together with one another. So there's this constant negotiation of of which, which commitments are, are going to be more defining than others, or how do you move from one social setting to another? And and, and what what aspects of your identity and, and will be will be dominant um, in a particular setting? I, I think this whole building tradition is really helpful for thinking about all of that because of this intense reflection on on the ways in which human beings are are individually and collectively self forming creatures. Um, Hegel, um, you know, particularly uh, important in terms of how he understands our our concepts themselves um, e- are implicit in our practices. And so in, in a very real sense, we are constantly forming and reforming the worlds in which we live. insofar so far as we experience the world through our conceptual categories. So, yeah. So I, I think there's really important resources for that dealing with that complexity in this tradition.
0: Interesting. That, Brings me to another question that I wanted to bring up from the book that you mentioned: the way in which commodification was a challenge that people like Goethe and Schiller were worried about, in the sense that it's going to be hard to produce and sell and get people to read these challenging novels that they were trying to write, that were going to push people to develop themselves, be reflective and question background assumptions they had about themselves and the world. And from Schiller's point of view, to be able to develop into graceful, virtuous people. So I could see those kinds of challenging novels, as you mentioned, might be quite difficult to sell and produce, and people might want something more consoling. And so I also wonder, you could bring in technology and say today, technology is encouraging people to focus on their Pleasing self presentation that will get them approval or status or likes. And both that, the commodification pressures and the technological reinforcement of the desire for social approval or something like that, seem to impede both the religion of art and I would think, you know, just as much religion too. So I wonder if you have any comments on that as sort of the technology and maybe market pressures and consumer satisfaction pressures impeding the project of realizing you know our humanity collectively individually developing virtue leading more happy lives
1: yeah well i mean it's certainly the case that religion is not immune to commodification pressures and so on. i mean i mean there's still obviously there's, there's still a dynamic according to which you're you're trying to capture people's attention and and, you know, gain their loyalty and their involvement and so on. And you're competing with others who are trying to do the same thing. And obviously we see that happening in religious communities as well. Um, and I think to some extent, what we, we're never going to get rid of these dynamics. What we can do is become increasingly aware of them. We can understand how they operate and that gives us a certain kind of power to direct them. And yeah, that's a power that could be used for evil as well as good, right? Mm-hmm. But I think that, again, this is, this is part of what Hegel is up to. He's saying there's no retreat back to a naive embeddedness in religion or culture or something we, because we now understand the ways in which we're constantly producing it. And it's affected by all of these forces. So we have to go forward. We can't go back. And going forward means becoming ever more fully aware of how these dynamics operate. So how we are, how we are influenced by certain forms of advertising. You know how we're going to be compelled by certain kinds of images because of the kinds of violent, you know, creatures that we are, and that. We we need to be critically aware of that and um, engage in those activities responsibly and critically. So, you know, I mean, we need to be prepared to critique uh, corporations that you know are abusing our vulnerability to certain kinds of images if they're directing us to act in in evil or irresponsible ways, for example.
0: Oh, that's interesting. That connection to Hegel be worth pursuing more, and maybe uh, Marx. But I think we have to wrap up at this point. And I just thought I'd ask if you have any recommendations. Most of my listeners, I think, are analytic moral philosophers, uh, but I'm interested in if you have any recommendations of contemporary theology books that listeners might want to take a look at.
1: Well, I mean, let me point to it, to a couple of of books that I that I do think I would I would put in that category. So one would be God and Creation in Christian Theology by Kathy Tanner. Um, so if, if, if anyone has been interested in what I had to say about kind of a contrastive understanding of human and divine agency and thinking about what a non-contrastive account of human and divine agency would be, she, this is a wonderful book that, that really very, very clearly articulates this. And uh, I, I highly recommend it. It's a real classic by now. Another book that I point to, um, very, very different book, but, but uh, also very accessible is The Christian Imagination by Willie Jennings. Um, in some sense, this is a book that brings to Christian theology, critical race theory. Um, it's um, the subtitle is Theology and the Origins of Race. So I, I mentioned it in part because, um, as we've talked about a little bit, I'm wanting to be very clear about this this um, kind of demonic side of the Bildung tradition, in which it feeds into um, imperialism and, and racism. And this is, a um, The Christian Imagination is a theological book that's thinking thinking historically about the ways in which Christianity is implicated in these things. So, so um, it gets beyond, I mean, I'm certainly not trying to say that it was um, only German late 18th and early 19th century thinkers who are to blame for all of this. Um, and the Christian imagination is, takes a much longer historical view, but it also does so in a way without that, that I think refrains importantly from saying that Christianity is the boogeyman here because that's also a vast oversimplification. Um, and I think um, these are dynamics that we that we need to be grappling with.